Our text tonight is Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. Hear the word of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. Good evening. Like seriously, good evening. How if it stays just like this, be perfect. It was so incredibly hot earlier today, but we had a fun day, did we not? We had a fun day. (laughs) No, only one person said no. Four-fifths majority, it was fun. So here's the question of the night. Can people change? It's an interesting question. It's an age-old question, I would say, because there's a lot of argument around whether or not people can actually change. I've had some people in my life tell me, without a doubt, that people are incapable of change. And I've had other people in my life tell me, without a doubt, that people actually can change. So which is it? Can people change? Well, I actually think it's both. I think in some areas, people can change, and I think in some areas, they can't. Our personality, for example, changes very little over our whole life. Your, your personality, your disposition is formed from about birth until you're around two years old. And very little of that changes as you grow older. But it's not the same with our character. Our character can change. And if you remember last week when we were talking about the first four Beatitudes, we talked about them in the way that they affect our character as they relate to our character. We talked about how our decisions and our actions affect our character. For example, take the thief who turns away from his stealing ways, becomes repentant, and now he's an advocate for honesty and truth. This is a person who made a choice to change character traits, to change his actions. He has changed. And our character traits are formed by habits. That's why books on habit formation fill up a lot of the self-help portion of the bookstore. I haven't picked on self-help books in a long time. You know how I feel about self-help books. There is a self-help book that I did read. It's called Atomic Habits. I don't know if any of you read it. It was an incredibly popular book. It, it's a book all about making these small, consistent changes, incremental changes to your life. And the author tells you that the, the issue isn't really any of you. The issue is that you don't have good enough systems built in your life and that you need a better new system to break bad habits of the bad old system habits. And actually, I don't think that his point was particularly wrong. Where he's wrong is his foundation. I do agree with him. We do need a system of habits that we will grow from, that will form and shape us. Where I differed with him was who designs that system. And see, that's what the Beatitudes actually does for us. It provides us a system and a framework and a foundation of the character traits that the disciple of Jesus must portray. And I use the word must on purpose. It's not because I expect any of you or me to follow the things that we've read here perfectly. We can't. We're fallen, sinful men and women. But we should be striving for Jesus' perfect way of living. Our atomic habits should be working towards growing closer to Christ-likeness and our growth and our sanctification in Him, growing in the way that He has commanded us to live. We all know that as Christians, we're born again, that we're repentant people, we're dead to our old selves, we're alive in our new ones. In Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, Paul says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, 
and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, our old self is gone. We put on the new self. This new self is created in the image and likeness of God. We get true righteousness and holiness. That righteousness word again that we talked about last week is in our passage this week, which is why I started this week's session or section with the last verse of what we ended last week with, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This that particular verse is this bridge between the first three Beatitudes and the second three Beatitudes. And what we're going to see tonight is that the first aligns with the fourth, and the second with the fifth, and the third with the sixth. These Beatitudes all actually connect, and they connect around this idea of our hunger and our thirst for righteousness and the satisfaction that comes from that. So what we're going to look at tonight is the system of Christian character development, what it means to be formed and shaped in the likeness of Christ, through the words of the Beatitudes. Last week, if you remember, we looked at poorness of spirit, the the mourning, the mourning of our sin, and then what meekness looks like. This week, we're going to look at mercy, being pure in heart, and what it actually means to be a peacemaker. And then again, binding these two sections together is that verse 6, that idea of the hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what we're going to see is that as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're actually going to be driven into a place of action. We're going to be driven into a place where we want to be in service of each other. We want to be in service of others. We want to help people. We're going to be people of action. And that's because our character development isn't about self-improvement. That's why I make fun of and pick on the self-help bookstore section. For those of you that are new, if self-help actually worked, they wouldn't be publishing a whole bunch of new self-help books every single year, right? There'd be one. There is one, actually. It's called the Bible. But the the deal about the Bible self-help, it's not actually about you becoming better for you. It's not about the inter... There is internal change, this character development, but it's about being in service of God and growing his kingdom. It's about serving him and not ourselves. It's about our growing in the likeness to him. So that's why the foundation of our character traits and, and our habits, they matter. Our atomic habits shouldn't be about us or our desires, but instead they should be about his desires and his world. This is what I love about pilots. All of us. I did it before any of you because I had the better view. I know, it's so good. But even that, listen to the birds too. That airplane, the birds. I've been, this is a segue, I'm sorry. I've been so overwhelmed in the last two days about the beauty of God's world. Like, we went to this concert last night, and I was just, Kristen looked at me at one point, she's like, are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm really good. God's world is so incredibly beautiful and perfect, and it, and it fits together in this, this way that only the creative artist that our Father in Heaven is could make. And I'm just overwhelmed by it, the birds and the sounds and even the airplane. I was thinking about radio waves and the magic that it is radio waves that we can talk to anybody in the planet that has another little electronic device that picks up radio waves. It's really rad. Okay, come back. So, with all of that and the segue, let's jump right in. We're going to start with verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We talked about this before. We talked about this in Hebrews. We know that statements in Scripture are not isolated. We know that that scripture is a a flowing piece of text. When we see chapter numbers and and verse numbers and divisions in the text, 
Those were put there for our organization. They were not put there so we just separate out single lines of text by themselves. So we know that if verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, that's coming right on the heels of verse 6, which was talking about our hunger and our thirst for righteousness. And so what, what we're thinking about here when we read this in order, like we read a book, is that mercy will come as a direct byproduct and result of our hunger and thirst for righteousness. These two verses are tied together. They are not independent statements. But it's not only that. Like I said just a few minutes ago, these verses are also connected to the verses that we read last week. So this mercy is tied directly to the very first beatitude we read last week, which is verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So last week we discussed that being poor in, uh, in spirit is a state of being. It's the realization that we cannot do it alone, that we need God, we need the Lord. We are not enough no matter how hard we try by ourselves. And, and the way that this works is it's actually self-reflective first, and it's through the Holy Spirit is how we get this place of self-reflection. It's when we come to terms with how poor in spirit we are, John Calvin would talk to it as our, our total depravity. What we do is we see ourselves for what we really are. We see the good parts, and we see the really broken parts. We are aware of our sin before the Lord. We are aware of our depraved state. It actually makes me think of, of a piece of text Paul at the very end of chapter 7 of Romans in verses 15 through 20 says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I can actually feel this, this tug back and forth that Paul speaks about. I'm sure everybody here has felt that, especially in those times where you know what you are supposed to do, and then you end up doing the exact opposite thing of the thing that you know that you are supposed to do, right? We end up doing the thing we're not supposed to do, and we get in this, this cycle of, I know what I'm supposed to, but I can't really pull myself to do it. I keep doing the thing I'm not supposed to do, and back and forth. And the, the reality is, if we try to work ourselves out of that space with our own hard work and our, our own gusto, it's like running on a treadmill. It doesn't actually get you anywhere. You know I don't really have a high value of running, sorry, because only you should run if you're being chased. But why run on a treadmill? Who's chasing you on a treadmill? Alas. But the point is that you get tired and you don't go anywhere, right? You can't separate yourself from your sin without God. It is literally a race to nowhere. Which is why in the very next verse, in chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans, Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He tells you the good news, even though we have that inner pull and, and the challenge that we have with sin and where we go back and forth with it, is that if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. So the reality is, if we don't know our need for salvation, that's our poor, being poor in spirit and our total depravity, we can never know that we need somebody to save us, that we need a savior. But when we do realize it, when God cuts really deep into our hearts, and we say, yeah, I really actually can't do this alone. Left to my own devices, I'm kind of like Paul in the passage in Romans 7 there. I, 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 
I'm doing the evil I don't want to do, but I want to do the good, and it turns into kind of that vicious cycle. That's where God comes in. When God works in our heart and convicts us, he allows us to grow and change through his spirit. So this self-awareness, this self-awareness of our sin, this reflection of our sin, along with the movement of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, causes us to change. We realize that we're poor in spirit and that we need God. And because we know our dependency, it causes us to have patience with ourselves, Because God has patience with us. He is so, so, so patient with us. So incredibly patient with us. And his patience should remind us to have patience with ourselves, too. We've talked to the kids about this. It's easy, easy. I know, whatever, what do they, they really want something, don't they? It's all right. It's like a flock, it's like a flock of seagulls. That's right, as long as their hair curl doesn't change at all. Yes, absolutely. No, I, I totally agree. <laughs> but the point about this patience is God shows us this incredible patience. I was saying about the kids. It's easy when you're a teenager and you're not good at something. This happens to adults too. I know none of you, obviously. I think you're really frustrated that you're not good at the thing you've never ever done before on the very first try. I know none of the pilots can understand any of that. This is where having patience becomes really important. We have to give ourselves grace. We have to have patience. God gives us patience. Part of him working in our hearts is this patience that comes out of it. Because his patience with us shows us his mercy, which then leads us to be merciful people. You see, the internal awareness of our sin affects our external actions when we deal with other people. When we are aware of our sinful state, of our depraved state, then what we also become aware of is other people's sinful and depraved state. And it's not because we're trying to be in a place where we're trying to judge people or we're trying to look at their sin and and make sure that we point it out and call it out. It's that we're trying to be in a place of patience with them because they're sinful people just like we are. They've got problems and they have challenges and they're poor in spirit and so are we. The Lord treats us with patience and treats us with mercy, which means we need to be taking that back out to other people. He treats us with incredible mercy. We must treat other people with incredible mercy. What happens is our compassion becomes compassion of uh, action, and it expresses itself in mercy. Kristen has this great tool for this. She told me this early when we first started dating, when we were dealing with some difficult people. And she said, Everybody's doing the best that they can do. And some people's best stinks really bad. But it's true, right? We all miss the mark from time to time. Sometimes we miss the mark a whole bunch. Some people are missing the mark a whole lot, a whole lot, right? And some people are just doing their best and their best sucks really, really bad. But how do we want to be treated in that place when we sin and we miss the mark? Do we want to be condemned? Do we want to be humiliated? Do we want to be canceled? Of course not. Now, that's what the world wants to do to you. We all know about cancel culture and its negative effect, and we've talked about that in this space before. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't tell you to cancel people. He doesn't tell you to humiliate people. He doesn't tell you to condemn people. He commands us to be merciful, patient, compassionate. And he commands us to do these things. But that's not the reason we end up doing them. Now, we need to do everything Jesus commands us, even when we don't feel like it. But what happens is our hearts start to change, as the Holy Spirit is working in us and sanctifying us, is that we start doing these things 
because we're being formed in Christ's likeness, and we start doing them because we love doing them. We want to give mercy to other people because we see how God gives us mercy. We, we want them to experience the joy that we feel. So we give mercy, and then we actually get to receive mercy because we are extending mercy to other people. It makes us aware even more, even if they don't return our mercy to us, it makes us even more aware of God's mercy coming down on us because we don't always do a good job of returning his mercy that he gives to us, do we? But we receive this because as we give, and, and because it is a gift, and because we are aware of the value of it, that's, that's the real piece of the gift, right? The, 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 the deal with a gift is the value that we get from the gift is when it's the surprise of the something that we really know we didn't deserve. We've all received physical gifts in this world that way, but that's, that's the gift that God gives us. He gives us this gift we don't deserve, and he gives it to us freely, and he gives it to us out of love, and when we really understand that, the real beauty of that, kind of the overwhelming beauty of that, it allows us to take that back out into the world and give that same mercy and that same patience and that same compassion to other people. Because it's not about whether they deserve it or not. It's because we're being good stewards in the likeness of Christ that we're trying to, to, to grow into. You know, Jesus expressed mercy through miracles. He, he healed all kinds of people. He healed all kinds of diseases. We don't go out healing people in diseases the way Jesus did. We're not performing miracles. There's a, the sun rising every morning is an absolute miracle. We're not performing healing miracles like Jesus did, but we are expressing mercy. And there are so many ways that we can express patience and kindness and mercy. Maybe it's that person that you just hate being patient with. With that person that's just so incredibly rude to you, no matter what you do or what you say, and your sinful part of you just wants to respond in kind, returning folly for folly. But maybe it's a way to, to use your resources to help those who are in need. Maybe it's money, it's clothes, it's, it's volunteering, it's your wisdom, it's your time, it's your stuff. There's so many ways that we can be merciful with other people. And the more we are, the more we actually get to experience God's direct mercy in our lives, which allows the, the kind of the truth and the beauty of the Beatitudes just to, to shine so present with us. Which leads us right into verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, in Scripture, there's, there's a couple different ways that that term or that concept is used. One is speaking about our internal holiness, that internal morality that we have. This is the opposite of externally seen piety. We're going to come back to that. We see this in the Old Testament. Moses, he calls the Jews to circumcise their hearts. Deuteronomy 10.16, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. And also in Deuteronomy 36, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, that you may live. Moses is talking about obeying God, but he's not talking about it like, obey God, or he's going to zap you down. He's talking about uh, obeying God from this place of love and sincerity of heart, the purity of heart, circumcising our hearts that we may love God with our whole heart and our whole soul. And the result of it is that then we may live. We get to actually really live. 
The second way that period of heart is used in Scripture, it's used in regards to simplicity and and kind of this idea of the freedom of being double-minded. The freedom from being double-minded. So I think we can think of this as how it it ties directly in to mercy that we just talked about. See, somebody who is pure in heart, who is not being double-minded, everybody here knows what being double-minded and hypocritical and those things are, right? I mean, I know nobody here has ever done that, but I'm sure you've encountered other people. Kid. But somebody who's pure in heart, who's not being double-minded, is going to show mercy because they don't expect to gain a reward. A double-minded person is going to show mercy because they expect to get something out of it, right? They may show mercy because, or, or post something on Facebook because they're going to get more likes, or they're, they're, if they do some humble bragging on Instagram, and then they can appear to be very humble and pious and all the things and pure in heart. But the motives, the double-minded motives, aren't pure. People who are pure in heart give mercy and give patience because they love to do it. Their heart is pure, and so their desire is to extend that purity of heart through love and kindness and mercy to other people. Their motivation isn't for themselves. What this really means in a bigger kind of scale is that our internal and our external must match. Our internal purity must match our external purity. Later in Matthew, we're going to see Jesus say that if we have murder in our minds, if we have lust in our, in our brains, we've committed murder and adultery. Our heart will always direct our actions. We actually get to see God and how he manifests through the world in our works, in our world, right? Through our actions and the actions of other believers. That's how people get to encounter the living God, is the way we live our lives. It's also a crucial part of how we disciple people. We've been talking a lot as we've worked through Matthew about discipling and training. And and even this week in the email, I was thinking a lot about training because Kristen's going to be running a, a women's program working through Mama Bear Apologetics. Even if you don't have kids, it is such a good book. It is such a wonderful tool for equipping you with what our faith believes and being able to really equip future generations to stand firm without compromise on what we believe and do it in joy. But fundamentally, discipleship is about training. It's training other people to be more like Christ. It's equipping them to be more Christ-like. That's what made me think about training and discipleship and joy and purity of heart. Because we're called to disciple all nations. We know that. We've talked about that a lot. And we also know there's a lot of approaches to how we can do this. There's formal programs. But when it really boils down to it, and I've said this many times, it really boils down to how we live our lives. Our internal and our external must match. That's why this beatitude connects to verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, those who mourn their sin will desire purity in heart. Those whose sin upsets them so much that they're repulsed by it, that they want to do everything they can to turn away from it, they will actually be comforted and see God. How? Well, they, they see it through the gift of grace that he provides, through his salvation, through his mercy. And then they're going to desire that for themselves, and they desire that for other people. Because when our lives are transformed by the Lord, we want other people's lives to be transformed too. Where's our motivation for discipleship? 
we, we're not a, a, a church here trying to raise huge funds so that we can big, build a bigger building and have more seats. Our call to discipleship for the nations here is so that we can go build more churches and build more communities and bring people into the joy of the Lord, not for our gain, but for his kingdom gain, because, gain, because their lives will be better if they're in faith. It's just a fact. That's why we have to check our motivations, that internal and that external, in every single thing that we do. This was a really tough place for me for a long time. My insides and my outsides didn't quite match. My outside, I think, appeared to be pure in heart, but my inside surely wasn't. My motivations for a long time were really prideful. They were selfish. They weren't particularly pure. That's why I like this quote from D.A. Carson. He says, we human beings are a strange lot. We hear high moral injunctions and glimpse just a little the genuine beauty of perfect holiness and then prostitute the vision by dreaming about the ways others would hold us in high esteem if we were like that. The demand for genuine perfection loses itself in the lesser goal of external piety. The goal of pleasing the Father is traded for its pygmy cousin, the goal of pleasing man. I call this the Christian merit badge syndrome. You guys know what I'm talking about, especially you guys have been, you guys have been in church for a while. You get like a sash, and it has all your Christian merit badges on it. All the potlucks you served at, anything you've done. And you can wear that sash proudly in any Christian circle with your, head, your pious held head high. Pious head held high? Did I say that wrong the first time? I think I did. Words are hard sometimes. It's been, we haven't slept much the last couple days. But you get to wear it high, and then you get to proudly walk into every church function, and then you can, you can declare your piety to everybody else. <laughs> that is the internal and the external not matching. That is fighting and screaming in the car as a family at, in the church parking lot, and then t- screaming at the kids and saying, you all better be really good when we get in, because I don't want anybody in church to think that we don't get along. It's the internal and the external not matching. So how do we make the internal and the external match? We live a life without compromise. It's actually really, really simple. None of this is particularly complicated. We live a life without compromising our Christian faith. See, when we live a life without compromise, we stand firm on the truth, no matter what the outside world, work, families, or any naysayers may say. I had a naysayer from a previous ministry experience say, well, he's just a backyard preacher. It's last week. That was how my week started off. That's okay. I'm happy, by the way. Even if that's just the rest of my preaching is here in a backyard, I love it. I love all you guys. I'd be happy to be here. There's naysayers everywhere. It doesn't matter where it is. But when we stand true to our convictions and we stand firm in who Christ says we are, then we're firm in our utter dependence of him. We stand firm in his word, we mourn his sin, we pray for God to work in our hearts, we forgive, we repent, we give mercy, we give patience. We live as simple, single-minded people. It's actually really easy. You just follow God's word, and then you actually get true freedom within it. There's total freedom. It's so beautiful. We get to see God's hand in every single thing as we aim to have this life of purity in heart. I think that's why I was just so overwhelmed this week with beauty. I've been thinking so much about beauty and how sad it is that our culture doesn't look for things that are beautiful anymore. Edifices that are beautiful, art that is beautiful, music that is beautiful. It made me think about it because we were at the concert last night and I was thinking uh, the gentleman who was singing is also a singer-songwriter, writes a bunch of songs for a bunch of other people. And I was thinking about dominion and creation that God allows us to create. No other animals create. 
Beavers build dams. It's out of necessity, not out of beauty. We may find those dams beautiful, but the beaver didn't. Beavers aren't swimming upstream to see that one dam. Like, oh, have you seen a Frank's dam over there? Damn, that thing's beautiful. But it's about beauty. We, we need to live lives of beauty. And I think when we get to see God's hand in everything, we get to really see the beauty of everything. Which leads us to verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The cheesemakers. Now, if you didn't watch Life of Brian in between last week and this week, I told you I was going to make another Monty Python reference. There's Sermon on the Mount. Brian's in the cheap seats on the way back. It's probably my favorite part of the whole movie. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And somebody in the back says, the cheesemakers. What did they ever do? And he said, ah, he doesn't literally mean the cheesemakers. He means anybody involved in dairy production. But Monty Python aside, we are called actually to be peacemakers. Though if any of you want to be cheesemakers, we love cheese here as well. Um, we are called to be peacemakers. And this does seem like a really big call in a world that does not appear to be particularly peaceful. You guys all cool with a little bit of rain? Sure. Bother anybody? Tell me when you want to go in. Okay, so this, just like the previous two Beatitudes, ties to one of the previous. So blessed are the peacemakers, ties to verse 5, which is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Peacemakers shall be called sons of God, and the meek shall inherit the earth. How do these two things connect? Well, what do most fights boil down to? They boil down to pride and, and one person demanding that they are right. It comes down to this self-assertion, this self-ambition. It's all about me. And what we talked about last week, if you remember, if you weren't here, is that the challenge of being meek is we live in this self-made man culture of America. And America's always been kind of a prideful place and not always in the best ways. See, there is a pride problem here. We can see this same pride problem, the same lack of peace all over the internet. How many keyboard commandos are there arguing and screaming at each other to be right with other people that they don't know making those demands, right? We know that, that, that people get so wrapped up in themselves and so wrapped up in needing to be right that they'll live in a place of unrest. They'll be depressed and anxious and discontent, the exact opposite of peace. We once watched this debate that Doug Wilson gave. He was at this college, and they were, I think he was talking about the Bible and sexuality. A Christian group had, had, had asked him to come in and speak, and the room was super packed, and it was not packed with people that loved the Lord or were really excited to be there. And so Doug would speak, and then he would say things that were scripturally true, that he was standing on his convictions without compromise, and then the crowd would just rally against him, and like really rudely, throwing insults and slurs and cussing at him. There was vitriol and hatred. And then they were all demanding that he listen to why their feelings should be right. And what was amazing to me is Doug stood there at the podium. I mean, they're just slinging. I mean, slinging really nasty stuff. And he just kind of chuckle and laugh a little bit. And you can see him kind of chuckle under his breath a bit as they were saying all of these things. He'd wait for them to finish politely, patiently. And then he'd respond very directly and, and, and scripturally clear. And this went on for the whole Q&A time. Doug asking, uh, acting patient and peaceful, and then the crowd hurling this prideful insanity at him. So how is he able to stay so calm and peaceful under pressure? Well, why? He's meek. Now, don't get me wrong. Doug is <coughs> tough and he's strong, but he's meek. 
He's not deep in his self-ambition. He's living without compromising the truth. He's deep in his God ambition. He's living in the truth and the conviction of Scripture, not in trying to prove to them that he's right. You know why? Because he already knows he's right. God gave him the word. He's on the offensive, not the defensive. We should always be people on the offensive. And I think that's why it's hard because sometimes people assume that, that peacefulness is the absence of conflict. But we know that it's not. We know that there's conflict everywhere. What peacefulness is, is a sign of maturity. Peacefulness dictates how we respond to conflict. We will always need constructive conflict to achieve real peace. Jesus did. He, he really challenged the status quo. He did it in real ways. Uh, he challenged conflict. To, he, he wasn't, I should say he didn't challenge, he, he didn't shy away from conflict. He, he was willing to engage in conflict to bring peace. He turned the world upside down. He pulled the veil off of people's unrest. Last week, we, we spoke about how the meek are content. And what we know is that only content people can be peaceful. Because when somebody is anxious and restless and untrusting and not believing in the Lord, they are not at peace. We see this all over the world, right? The selfish and unbelieving person is somebody that is rarely ever at peace. But somebody who is meek, who is trusting in God, who is never compromising what they believe in, is almost always at peace. That's what it was watching Doug stand at the lectern while these guys were hurling insults and being nasty to him. He was 100% at peace because he's fully trusting in God and he knows what the truth already is. Because it's not actually about self-assuredness, it's about God-assuredness. When we know our standing, we know our meekness, when we realize that our work and our callings are actually gifts from God, they're not our own doing, then we can be at peace. Because when we trust in God, we don't live in worry. Christ is going to command us later in our text not to worry. Why? Because we can't be trusting and peaceful people if we're deep and worried. But we also can't be afraid of conflict. Christ was a peacemaker, but he wasn't afraid of conflict. He wasn't afraid to use a serrated edge when he needed to. And he did it all for the glory of his kingdom. And this is the same way we need to approach peacefulness. We need to approach it with the full trust of God. We need to think about how we are mature and how we're going to handle conflict. Having the ability to laugh in the face of attacks and, and naysayers while still standing firm on our convictions. That's how we become the sons and daughters of God is we trust in him and we live content, peaceful lives. I think you can see, this is why I love the Beatitudes so much. They are, they are direct formational statements. They're foundational atomic habits. They are absolutely the real deal. They are the actions we need to take to change our character, to grow in sanctification, but we can only do it through the Holy Spirit. And if we do, we will be formed. And what I really love is that they're super countercultural for 2022, which makes me just even love it even more. If you really want to be edgy now, be pure in heart and merciful and a peacemaker. That, that'll, really, that'll really go against the cultural grain because they're the foundation of selflessness, of godliness, and we live in a world that is deeply rooted in selfishness. And what was really beautiful is the Beatitudes, it's true. The reason they said blessed are is that when we, when we live a life in this manner, we actually live a blessed life. Try it. T take the, the six 
Beatitudes that we've talked about and that joining statement, that hunger and thirst for righteousness, you go out into your week, this week as you go out into the world, if these aren't things that you're great at doing, extend patience, extend compassion, extend mercy. I guarantee it. It's going to change the way your character is and the way you act with the world. It doesn't mean people are always going to respond to it for us. They're not always going to, to respond in merciful ways when we're merciful with them. But it is a way for us to live out our Christian life in action. Next week, we're going to look at what the results of the blessed life look like. The results of this character formation that comes from living in the manner that Christ told us to live. And just like we, we read in verse 6, what's going to happen is as we live this out, our hunger and our thirst for his righteousness it's going to be our guiding formational force. We are going to yearn for it, I promise. That hunger and thirst and the blessings that come with it, those are what will allow us to stand firm in our convictions, no matter what our worldly circumstance is, no matter what, no matter what the worldly or familial or work or whatever those external pressures are. And what it's going to allow us to do is become merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. We will take action to advance God's kingdom for his glory and not our own glory. This is how we can change the world. And it's not for merit badges and accolades and more likes on your Instagram page or whatever the new thing you kids use today is. I can't keep track of it. Is it is still Instagram the thing? Oh, no, no, snap, whatever the thing is. The TikToks, you know, get rid of it all. Um, but the point is we're not going to do this for our own accolades. We're doing this because we're drawn to do it to grow God's kingdom to disciple people, to baptize the nations. We will be people who do not avoid conflict, but we will deal with it in a mature and productive way and an absolutely large sense of humor. You cannot get through the faithful Christian life without an incredibly large sense of humor. So I want to close with a quote from G.K. Uh, Chesterton that I heard this week. He said, Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble which I think defines this group more than anything else that I could have found, that we are people who are fearless and joyful and usually mostly in trouble. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for cutting deep into our hearts to form us and shape us. Lord, I pray as we leave this space and we, we go out into the world and as we continue to advance your kingdom, that we do it as people who are merciful, people who are pure in heart, single-mindedness, that our internal and our external match, and that we're peacemakers. So bless us in those areas, Lord. Strengthen us in the areas where we all need strength. Maybe it's patience. Maybe it's frustration. Maybe it's mercy or grace or gratitude or even giving those things to ourselves. Lord, um, remind us deep in our hearts of our salvation and the free gift of grace that you give us and how beautiful that is, how life-changing that is. And may we be agents of those same things as we interact with the world, the believing and the unbelieving world that we will be a light to nations. Bless us in the work that you've called us to do. All this we pray in your mighty name. Amen.